Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast. I'm your host, Sultan Ghaznawi. Today we are going to be covering a macro business topic around successful acquisition of language companies. I have invited Christoph Giovanni to speak to me about that and share his experiences from many different ventures that he has formed over the years. Christoph joined SDL in 2018 following the acquisition of Donnelly Language Solutions, where he served as a senior vice president leading the language solutions arm of Donnelly Financial Solutions. Since then, Christoph has successfully led the integration of his teams known as SDL Regulated Industries, providing expert multilingual communication solutions to financial, legal, investor relations, and life sciences sectors and their subsectors. Christoph began his career in the multilingual communications field in 1998 and first gained experience as a project manager for translation services in R.R. Donnelly's New York office. In 2001, he took on his first production supervisor role for Europe and Asia in the company's London office. In 2005, he moved into a sales role before being appointed global sales director in 2008. In 2016, R.R. Donnelly spun off into three entities with Christoph taking the role of Senior Vice President and Managing Director to the newly created Donnelly Financial Solutions and was appointed to their executive team. Graduated from the University of Grenoble and then Miami, Christoph understands how to connect with customers internationally. He has a proven track record working with Fortune 500 clients and an in-depth knowledge of current trends across the industries and subsectors that SDL serves. Christophe, welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast show. Hello and bonjour, Sultan. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me with you today. You know, I wanted you to be on the show for a long time, and I know you're a busy man, so finally I'm very happy that you could make it. Well, you're very welcome. I think I I was also looking forward to be with you in, in, in this podcast, Sultan. So thank you very much again for the invitation. Thank you, Christophe. So I'm always interested to learn about the journey. Um, what did it mean for you to be part of this industry and how did you see it evolve and change over time? Yeah, I think very interesting question, right? When, when I when I first started in New York, um, our services was really focused on, on IPO translation. So right. really on some of these big deals like Dutch Post, Dutch Bank, a lot of privatizations, so very niche and specialized and very manual, I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw the evolution really towards the tech and, and we really tried to create kind of a solution. So not only a tech service company, not only a services company, but really a mix of both to create customized solution for our customer. And I we, we also started way, way before um, the verticalization of, of the solution. So when I talk about verticalization, I'm talking about the segment, life sciences, finance and legal, we realized that 80% of the process was similar, but it needed 20% of domain specific. And this is what I saw as an evolution as well. Before was more generic and we were able to branch out into the regulated industry 
from different angles. How did all of that change since you got into this business? Uh, Where are we now? Where were we at the time when you joined in? Uh, Have things become better or there's more uh, problems that we have to deal with? Yeah, I think it's... um... You can see the improvement, Sultan. And I, I think we had this this chat together a, a while ago when I say I was surprised when I sit down with 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 a longtime customer of mine, uh, and he's well, Christoph. You know, ten years ago we kind of look at these processes, we look at this tech, but actually we thought we will solve the problem, but actually we didn't. This was kind of a big bank, and I will say that despite all of our efforts, despite educating. Um, you know, our customer or also trying to find new way to produce, we are still not meeting some of the need of our customer in the regulated industry space. So, so there's a lot more opportunities to be exploited. Yeah, I believe, I, I believe we just scratched the surface. I believe that we, we have now the foundation about automation. We have some of the right uh, investment in terms of tech, we have some of the right angle as well, but there is still missing from the client side. And here, I really portray myself from the client side, saying that well, it's still not 100%. So we may think in the industry we have it, but when you take the outside in, doesn't sound like it. So we still have opportunity, in my opinion. So the subject of our uh, conversation today is successful acquisitions of language companies. I know you have been involved in many of them. We've heard from consultants and outside people about how M&A works. Uh, and uh, I'm interested to learn about your perspective and successfully committing a deal with an acquisition. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, it is a very interesting topic and clearly fashionable based on the flow of investment in our industry for the last few years. So. I would say M&A really involve, and, and it's really different from when I started. I mean, we kind of acquire on our side Multicopera in Canada that you're aware of right. um, as well. So small company, family, it's how you protect the values as well um, of, of what you acquired. So M&A is kind of very strategic. And I will say that rule number one here is really to take into account the human element and not to destroy the value built over the years by the company being acquired. I would say that this is clearly critical. Always taking also some some respect from you know from the people and and always in a respectful manner. I mean there is bad news to be delivered, but there is kind of um, an element of empathy that need to be um, taking into account for the people as well. The culture, in my opinion, is um, number one. When you say really what is success, I will say it's towards the culture. Is how do you manage to align two company different cultures when sometimes one is dominant versus the other, but try to really balance and to make sure both of them are learning in order to make sure they are adding value to the customer. And I would say that the culture, the element of the customer, the the empathy, the respect, these are clear elements that will bring success in an M&A deal. That makes sense. Now, let's start by identifying value in a company that you're interested in acquiring. Um, How how do you do that? Where do you look uh, and search to find a company that's valuable to you? Good. So that's um, that's another good question here, Sultan. So I will say good M&A starts with a clear business strategy and identifying the gaps in your own businesses as well that right. you may have and what can be done to accelerate, really. For example, do you need to add technology? 
new expertise? Do you need to enter a new geographical market or sector, right? If you want to kind of expand in a different sector, so you kind of get this knowledge. Then it is a case of understanding which of these are the true priorities and indeed whether acquisition is the best way to fill the gap. And once you have clarified your priorities and your potential alternative option, which is critical as well, then you can start your search by analyzing the market and where necessary, getting help from advisors. So it comes down to a vision. I mean, the leadership has to have a vision as to where they want to go and whether this this acquisition fits into that vision and, and strategy, as you said. Correct. I think it's where you can fit this into your overall strategy, because if you have this in mind, then it's very easy to execute the integration phase and to add value to the customer. If you don't have that, and it's an opportunistic one, then you will have to run against what you are trying to achieve because it is not clear, except potentially synergy. But other than that, not much. You talked about uh, geographically expanding. So if you were to identify a company that's based in outside your geography, you don't know too much about that. So where do you go? How do you do your research? Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of create and, and you can use some of the data that is available in the market. I think right. that, you know, there is kind of some of the elements that you can find on the web. You can analyze already. You get a sense with, um, you know, the website. I will say that number one, the website is a good indication about the company and it's the image of the company as well that you are trying to potentially acquire. So I will say that this is a good first start. Then you, I mean, it's a, it's a small industry, right? So it's a, it's a, you know, you can ask, you know, indirectly a couple of people here about some of the question or, or some information about one of the company. And, and you need to start slowly but surely to gather data as well. I mean, someone know a friend somewhere also. So you, so you just started like that to start, um, you know, looking and tailor some of your research. Uh, Christoph, you have been involved in multiple M&A activities in your career. Uh, talk to us about your general observations and how you experience dealing with the owner or shareholders of a company for which you were part of the acquisition team. Yeah, I, I think over the years I've seen a lot of M&As, as I say, that created value um, on my Donnelly time. And, and I also saw some M&A, not many, but some that destroy value. Um, and I will say there is always a close parallel, right, with the human capital. I mean, I hate to, to, to call it human capital. That's mainly how financial people are qualifying, but mainly with, with the people. So I also saw somewhere the clients were placed in the center of the rational, and I will say that this is kind of important. So just to give you an example, when we did the SDL and DLS deal, the first 100 days we say um, with the previous CEO here that we will go and we will meet the 100 clients in 100 days to make sure we stabilize um, you know, our platform, we explain the benefits, the rationale of the deal, we create stability in a time of change, so we bring confidence to them, right. you know, to, to them. And, and I will say that the keys is opening the communication as well. And, and if, you, if you use this formula, you will have zero customer attrition following the transition. And I think that this is what everyone is aiming to. That's an interesting point, uh, Christophe, but what does customer attrition look like for uh, a, a standard deal, the way it's right now um, handled in our industry? I'm pretty sure that the customers feel some difference and, and some of them would like to move on. 
Yeah, agree. I think that there is an element, there is an element of risk, which means that if if one clients have potentially three suppliers, A, B, C, and the supplier A, B are coming together, then there is no more alternative. They cannot put all the eggs in the same baskets, right? For for risk purposes, which which right. makes sense. Um, so there will be there will be a new entrant in terms of as a supplier into this pool. So while we think from, from the outside market here for the LSPs, consolidation in our industry, I always saw that the consolidation in our industry being the biggest is the most important and will be the most important like it is in print, in the print businesses when I came from with our Donnelly. But actually it's right. not because our industry is so fragmented that you don't have only five players. It's actually the opposite. So any kind of consolidation at the top is giving huge opportunity for other companies and LSPs as well to enter new customers. So you're right, from the customer standpoint, if a customer see a company that is just focusing on profit or just you know pushing their agenda, not being flexible, um, they will look for an alternative. And, and we saw that clearly, and it's happening as well already. For a company acquiring another company, is it important for them to not be in the same vertical so that they don't step on each other's toes? I think you can have you can you can be in the same vertical, but then you need to define some of the sub vertical and some of the approach. You need to make sure you have your go to market right. I'm going back to business strategy, right? If you don't have any business strategy, what you will just do here is to duplicate the number of people and you will just take one out. And sometimes there is no rational behind the one you take out. It's just basically based on an Excel spreadsheet. So this is kind of a short term view. It can have an impact, it can have an effect, a positive effect, right? But long term, it doesn't create value for the customer. And to go back to some of your initial feedback, then the customer will say, okay, we see a drop in terms of services, so we need to look for an alternative. Has it happened that uh, two of the players probably got together to get rid of the third one, so uh, there's more market for them um, by acquiring the third one, of course? I think that in some of the niche market, potentially you can see that, I mean, this is a strategy that for some players is potentially a strategy. Um, I don't think it's it's relevant to our industry because there's so many angles, so many, so many LSPs, but I think you are going back to the element. I mean, when I was in, in France, I studied a little bit, the, you know, at the time in economics, we were studying the Taylorism and the Fordism. And you still have some of these leaders who think that if you industrialize uh, something, it means more profit and, and, and that you kind of have a, a higher return in terms of shares, which actually, if you look at some of the most successful IPO, like Alibaba and others, this is kind of, a different angle. I think it's a different world. The, the Fordism and the Taylorism had a, a great proven track record at the time many years ago, but the environment, the ecosystem, and our industry is very different. It still remains artisanal versus industrial, in my opinion. What defines us as unique here? You said we are we will continue to be an artisanal type of an environment, uh, but technology is creeping in. And do we have anything to uh, to use in our advantage to stand out? I think we do. I, I think I think it's starting. Huh? I will say that you know when I say artisanal, I think it's already evolving, right? But I think right. that it's still a long way to go, because if you think about it, the scope, different country, 
right? I mean, think about all the country, different language pair, right? Think about the different industry. Think about our customer. Inside our customer, what do you have? You have different buying centers. Inside these buying centers, you have different buying personas. Inside of our customer, you have the Fortune 500, but then you have the mid-cap company, but then you have the small-cap company. I mean, think about how vast this is. And I think that this is the, the kind of the difficulty that we have, is that how do we address all this? And, and it's hard to find one company that will address it all. It has been tried. I mean, some of the larger companies in the in this industry, without naming any of them, they've been trying to to be everything to everybody, and and it hasn't worked, I guess. Correct. And it's still, if you think about the percentage, it's still very limited versus what should be the market share, right? And I think that this is this is an aspect that we don't measure in our industry, which is kind of because it's very hard, and that's what I mean. The consolidation is potentially for some the easiest way when you have cash to get right. companies. But actually, if you think about the market share, it's huge and there is still opportunity for the companies that will truly be disruptive, that truly will be agile and will be focusing on customers, clearly. I, mean, I will say that rules number one, and this was one of my motto with, with, with our DLS team for many years, it's customer first always. And I believe that this remain and will be even more important in the future, especially with personalization and these big companies that you mentioned that we will not uh, kind of put the name here. The process are very rigid, right? The process right, right. are very rigid. Is there way or no way? And I will say that at one point, some of the customer here will realize that the way, it's not actually the most efficient way for them, for them as customer, but more for the vendors. And I think that this is already... Uh, happening in some instance. Would that do you see a shift in and managed services being more popular with end clients, or do you think that there's more room for uh, accommodating flexibility from the clients? Yeah, I think um, I saw I saw an increase of managed services for you know for the last for the for the last couple of years, and I I, I believe it will continue to increase in the future. If you got the managed services, and if you get in parallel the solution. I think you got the right. I think you got the right recipe for your customer. Christoph, is acquiring a translation company or even an interpreting company? I guess, uh, I mean, as, as a language services company, is it different from acquiring a product-based company like a technology or tool provider? And if so, why is that? Yeah, I mean, this one is. I mean, there are quite few similarities. Um, for example, I, I mentioned to you, Sultan, that. Uh, important when you acquire a company is a, is a culture and the people, right? A very key element because if not, uh, depending on your approach, the good people will leave and this is where kind of you destroy value. I will say very important the customer communication as well and the cross-selling plan when you have tech and services. However, with technology acquisitions, there is an additional element really of, of, of technical integration and examination of the tech roadmap. Sometimes there is also an, an, you know, an evaluation of, of the code and sometimes it can be quite challenging for tech and services company to come together because the culture are different, business model are different, processes are different. I saw in the past with my experience as well, um, the production, the sales platform, the sales skill set are very different between tech and services as well. Very hard to combine. And if you look in our industry, it's also the same. We, we saw in the past many different kind of way 
to try to overcome this challenge about tech and services. But as of today, I still think it's there. It's become very fashionable for um, translation companies, for example, these days to go and acquire another translation company that has a technology or completely a technology company. So most of these these services companies have no experience with working with technology, which is a completely different beast. What, what's your thought? What can go wrong? Well, I, uh, I kind of agree. I mean, I, I, I learned it. I learned it with the acquisition of Multicopera in Canada, right? It was a small business created for the Canadian government, was a family business, and it was very kind of different. However, what we what we did was to really keep it as standalone to make sure we are not destroying value and we are keeping the key talent and, and the son of the founder who created the, 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 the you know the, the software was and remain with us. For, for many years, actually. So it's how do you really protect? And sometimes here it's a give and take. It's very different um, in terms of expectation. It's very different in terms of processes. So I will say that you need to have key people here helping you through the integration of, of the tech and services. Now, most of the company also are buying tech not for their clients, some of the companies are buying tech for increase their productivity and their margin as well. And this is very different. You have an operational, you can buy tech for an operational perspective, or you can buy tech for a go-to-market perspective, or both. Understood. Same, go back to the strategy. I think, I think it's really going back about the strategy, about what, why are you kind of buying a tech company? Some language services company bought a tech company just to being able to control the roadmap for the end customer. This is another one. I have seen it in the past. One question that comes up from that um, answer, uh, Christophe, is that nowadays technology seems to be a more of, um, it, it's a must-have. It's not an option anymore. So uh, as our industry is becoming more technologically um, savvy, if you will, um, do you think that it's easier to buy, for example, um, a machine translation provider as opposed to developing your own solution? And if you do that, how should you justify the value? Yeah, I think, I, I, well, some, some, of the, some of the company can justify the value of, 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 of the MT or buying an MT company based on the profitability gain that they will have internally using the MT instead of the development. I mean, if they develop, I mean, it's true that you can develop with the right people, you can develop machine translation quite easily. You don't have to pay a fortune, right? And, and But but some do not know. And some will say on the rush, it can be reactive as well. It can be defensive because a client is pushing for it or it's a competitive threat. Sometimes you have some of these deals that are also defensive. Now, some, it's more investments long term, I mean, you kind of have potentially a private equity that want to buy a tech and then add another tech or combine the tech. And you can see right now the flow of money going into TMS, right? But I will say that there is sometimes something behind and and it may be quicker to buy a company if you are um, under, under defensive, uh, defensive approach or if you want to be offensive to, to get one, one, one particular client. And that makes sense. So let's let's go back to the acquisition um, discussion that we had. Where do you draw the line to set a budget and limit for your acquisition? Yeah, I, I think obviously you start with affordability. 
and, and, and you may have a maximum of cash or debts that you wish to spend. So there is always kind of a parameters here um, that is defined. Second, you also need to take into consideration the alternatives to acquisition and, and we discuss, and, and this was towards your question. For example, could I build this software myself and how much time it's going with money, right? How much time and money will it take me to do it? Or is that kind of a partner that I can work with to enter a particular market? Because this is also an angle that is kind of used in the tech world and not so much in the service world is a partner approach, which can also be an alternative. A lot of uh, people listening to us, they're, they're, they're executives in language companies and some of them are looking at acquiring a company for the first time. So then my next question is probably very interesting to them. What is the formula for calculating the valuation of a company. Uh, Christoph, I've heard so many different recipes and so on, but what has worked best for you? Is it unique for the language industry? Um, no, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not unique. Um, there is nothing unique about, about valuating language services company here. I think the, the way to look at it, and, and it can be relatively simple, in essence, you are projecting the future cash flows of a business. Right. So, I mean, you got the forecast, you're projecting the, the future cash flows of the business. And there are some quite easy proxies for that. But the most common is really a multiple of the operating profit. And then it's what is in this operating profit. And that's where you need to kind of look and dig into. But technically, this is really what it is. It's a multiple of the operating profit. And, and how many multiples is the norm? Is there some common denomination? I think it can, I mean, you can see it was kind of some of the report. I mean, it, it, it can it can really vary what you can what you can get. I mean, clearly the seller will try to get the maximum and the of buyer course. will try to get <laughs> the minimum. But I, I will say you saw some some crazy ranges, right? I think that you saw some what could be uh considered as normal. But even even in the pure tech environment, right, you can see different evaluation, um, I, I will say, I will say compared to before where you can see there is a benchmark. I, I'm not sure that there is, now we can say that there is a benchmark in terms of what should be that. You see what I mean? I think it's right, right. very really about going back to the, what you can afford to your strategy. How do you want to go and for what purposes you want the acquisition because the model, the modeling will take all this into account, all these variables. So what you're saying is that uh, the value is in, in the eyes of the beholder. So if you see that there's a company that you are willing to pay certain amount of money for and, and you see it important to you or it makes sense, whether it's sentimental or whether it's uh, logical, then that's your decision. There's yeah. no formula for that then. I, th I, th I think it depends on where you want to go and your business strategy. I, I will say that you can you can say that there is a, and the affordability that you have. I mean, clearly you say, okay, if you pay maybe 20 times EBITDA, you will not go for it or EBIT, right? Or operating profit. But 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 in a way, you you I think some company will 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 still look at it, and and we've seen it, which is you know we don't know, but it, but it happened. So it was potentially a reason. From the buyer side, which you have been there before, what does the process look like? Uh, what steps need to be accomplished in order to conclude the sale successfully? Yeah, so I think um, 
I mean, few few questions here. So once once a buyer once as a buyer you are clear on your strategy, your budget, and your valuation parameters, you begin engaging with potential targets. That's really usually how it started. It is always worth starting conversation even with companies that may not be for sale because. Um, the reality is that is, is that the process is is usually focused on company actively um, seeking uh, for for sale. But you can start also discussing with companies that then you kind of create a little bit the need and you create the parameters about why they will sell to you. And then I will say the key steps are the discovery. Uh, I will say that this is very very important for everyone here who's kind of will engage in a process, which is when information is shared, possibly via an information memorandum and a management meeting. I think you get a sense about the performance of the business, the strategy, the direction, and a feeling of the people as well in the management meeting. I think it will give you a lot of, of, about the culture, about the people that you're having, and, and you know how the company is run, which I will say again, it's critical. Then you move to an indicative offer and possibly possibly um, a term sheet. And if accepted, both sides move into a confirmatory due diligence phase. So this is where usually you have a, a virtual data room. And you also start to draft the purchase agreement in parallel. So you kind of save time and in parallel you do that. So that later phase is the most expensive for both sides and should be only undertaken if both sides are highly committed. So there is no point to engage into these due diligence kind of processes where you dig into um, normally the people, the customer, and many other sensitive information that is taking time to combine many questions, a lot of Q&A back and forth in a very short period of time. And I will say there is no point to engage if you're not, or if both the seller and the buyers are not ready to get there. And it normally takes six to eight weeks. So it's, they are usually very intensive week. It's kind of a roller coaster during this week. And, and, and what you pointed out here is very important. Uh, how many times do companies regret doing this because the deal fell apart and, and they didn't follow the first couple of steps uh, properly? And they spent all this money in order to, to, to complete the deal, but it didn't happen. How often does that happen? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I, I, not every deal are, are going through, right? I, I believe that it's very, you know, it's it's kind of the opposite, right? Just few deals are coming through versus what is available in the market. So you have you have kind of definitively some item. Number one, um, maybe you discover, and that's why the due diligence is there. It's not to validate the sale. It's also to look at really the potential, what is behind, how it was run, getting some data, getting, getting some fact. I think there is nothing worse than kind of buying a company on perception and or, and on that because then you get something and and it's not really what you bought and this is kind of a very big challenges and this is where you need then to explain to your shareholders or to other what you did so i will say that this phase of due diligence that's why it's so intensive because the buyers will make sure that all the boxes are ticked and sometimes you know the sellers will not really understand the question because they are in their own kind of businesses, right? They have their right. own, view. they run their business, they are in their bubble. But but it's also, I, I used to know companies that kind of went through the process just to be able to challenge the internal processes, which means that if you can pass a due deal process, that means that your process internally 
it's quite strong because you are able to provide reports, you are pro able to provide data. So you are also in a way cleaning up everything internally that you have. So I saw companies saying, well, if I don't sell, that's okay. I will have basically clean up. We will have been challenged on our process to what we should do better. It, it can be seen as, as both way. A dry run practice for them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Christoph, I know that you were involved in multiple international acquisitions on both the seller and the buyer side. Uh, you just named a few of them. How would you say the experience is different for uh, one party from the other, basically? H how do you feel, you know, being on the different side of the, the transaction? Yeah, I never, I mean, I always kind of personally, it was never a problem for me to be on, on both sides. I think that on, on one side, you are on the drive, you, you know, you are driving the deal. And on the other, you are just facilitating the deal. That's clear. Um, however, the process feels the same for buyers and sellers. As long as both are involved in the discussion and you have a seat at the table, I mean, it's 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 fine. I think that as a leader, if you don't have a seat in the table, this is where potentially you don't know what's coming, and this is where the experience can 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 be um, a bit sour based on based on what you are getting or receiving at at a later stage. So. In my experience on both sides, this is highly kind of valuable and, and, and you know, whatever your buyer or seller, you can actually share your knowledge um, with each other and you can also recommend your approach. But at the end, I mean, it's it's a bit like, like, like in our personal life, right? At the end right. of the day, some people will listen and some will not. It comes down to what's important to you strategically. Correct. Correct. A related question, who is normally involved in the buying process? I mean, we're talking in the context of the language industry. What type of strategic studying and research needs to happen before you get into that buying process? So usually what you have, often often the buyers will have some in-house M&A experience, but also work with M&A advisor, and there are few that are qualified in our industry, and there are few that are qualified for high-end deals, so big company, mid, uh, you know, medium company and small company, you have different advisors that are very good. You got some uh, accountants as well as lawyers. So usually due diligence allows the buyers really to understand more about the potential risk, the synergies, the scalability. And, and this is when the acquisition model is created. You remember that in previous question, I talked about this model, right? When right. it takes into account all the viable and this is kind of critical, and this is where you need to have some help. So evaluation of the financial, the budget, the business model, the talent, again, which is key, customer, the vendors, the current strategic plan, and the forecast, which will give you a sense of what to expect in terms of revenue in the coming months or year. I think smaller uh, companies merge all the time when and even they they have challenges. Assuming that the scale of challenge matches the magnitude or size of the uh, merging parties, do you need to involve an outside party like a broker to facilitate the deal? I, I will say for me, I, to facilitate the process and to keep you on track, I think it's always better to have help during the process. Um, this is where you need to find the right person to help you and support you in the process. Even a small deal, I will say that you need to get some knowledge in terms of what to anticipate. I'm going back to the preparation. The preparation of the deal will make this deal successful for the people. Even if it's small or not, there is customers, there is people, there is kind of alignment, there is kind of different culture potentially. 
Um, there is a financial that may be different, the way it's calculated. So it's always good to start thinking about all that initially so you don't bring disruption along the way and after. You can rebound very quickly. Is there, um, um, I'm not sure if uh, industry specific or a global template for mergers that people can actually go through a checklist and say, I have all of these things done and now I'm ready to go and talk about an acquisition or on, if you're on the other side, uh, about a merger of some sort? Well, it's not, I, I think you have some, you know, some some standard practices, but in my opinion, you know, based on the different countries, international deal versus no international deals between some of the people you have in front, whatever it's a shared deal, it's private or other, there is not a, a standard template. I think there is standard section that you can think of, HR, finance, legal, tax, and I think it's mentioned, but but there is no particularly a standard template. There is a methodology that is being used and dispatched, and you can see that, but but it's very sometimes it's it it, it kind of tap into different angle and it's not so relevant. So I will say depending on the existing buyers and sellers, this is where also um and you have like some advisor have different way to work. There are different ways to kind of approach a deal and you need to find really the right chemistry with who you use and how you work. When you merge two organizations with headquarters in different uh, geographic locations, you're bound to run into issues with trade, law and and whatnot. Please talk to me about the best way to accomplish an acquisition that is cross-border. Yeah, sure. So this is usually, I mean, can be not as complex as we think. It's complex in terms of administrative tasks that right. need to be done, but it somehow depends on what the acquirer's entity structure looks like. Same, depending on the structure that you have. You may need to set up a new entity, um, you know, to acquire, I mean, you know, so, so, the other company, or you can fit a subsidiary beneath an, an existing entity, right? I mean, this is also the angle that you can take. So I will say that this is really the, the simple way in terms of structure on how you can manage and same it's at the preparation stage that you can think what will be the most efficient way for you to do it one thing that i hear a lot in the industry is a concern about how merged entities can be structured as you just mentioned i think it comes down to your current structure but explain to me what are some of the common setup or corporate structures in the language industry when people acquire companies outside their borders yeah, usually you will have a holding and then you will have different branch in, and different entity in, in, in different country. I will say that this is a particular complexity of our business, right? Because, I mean, if you are, you know, in, in 34, 44, 34 countries, I mean, potentially here it's all entities that you need to maintain. So it's how do you make sure that you merge entity plus at the local level, some specificity, for example, for France, for Canada and other, some country can be more easier than others. So sometimes what you do is that you can put all this in a, in a holding or you bring all this entity into um, a different entity and you can merge both entity, for example, in France or other. So, so there is different tactics to do that. But initially, you need to set up, I will say, your foundation at the top level about how it should look like, because then you can definitively simplify it as you cascade down. Mm-hmm. And uh, are, are there, uh, for example, um, uh, models where um, people keep these entities separate completely? One can be an invo- invoicing structure to the other one. 
do do those things happen? How common are they? Yeah, I think you can see that you you can see that some you also have some dormant entity. Some some company decided just to keep an entity dormant, not using it, but not taking it away um, for for the future, for example, or that they will use it for something else. So you have dormant entity, um, and you can combine or, or you can use one entity for a particular um, service, but you need to be cautious with all the tax implementation, VAT and others as well. And, and, and there is in some of these companies where you have this type of uh, setup in terms of holdings, there is a lot of recharge internally via one entity to the other entity as well. So there is a lot of mechanism behind it that need to be compliance really with, uh, especially if you are a public company. It's, if you are a private company, you have more flexibility towards the overall structure of entity. With any acquisition, it is inevitable that there will be some degree of restructuring and workforce alignment, as you mentioned earlier. What has your experience been in, in such acquisitions? Uh, and Christoph, do you find it helpful to maintain the staff on both sides? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, restructuring can be accomplished on many different fronts. I mean, it can be very, uh, you know, integration, restructuring can be a scary word, right? It means change. Um, but I will say that what I've seen in the past is that the most positive results are achieved when a blend kind of management or, or, or people take place naturally um, with some of the strengths, some of the weaknesses. And and, and it is it is really possible if leaders made the right decision at the top. So this is really going with, with, with some of going back to the strategy when you do an acquisition. It should be an, a plan of execution to make sure you don't destroy value, but you create value. And one is about learning. I mean, the, the buyer should also learn from, from the seller, right? About And both sides in order to make them even greater and better in the marketplace. And this, in my opinion, go with the blend. Blend means also diversity and this is why the blend is also important based on the culture this is why i'm, I'm coming back to the culture and i'm coming back also to um you know the the, the the approach of the the people at the top to make this a success for the overall organization or for themselves and it's very different Let's talk about culture. How important is the culture of the organizations that are emerging? How do you determine that there is a cultural match or a fit on both sides? Yeah, I think it's I think you can you you definitely have a sense when you meet the management team and you meet the leaders and you see a little bit what is being done for, you know, the employees. You kind of look at some of the program. I mean, I know I know everyone has values, right, in terms of cooperation, but these values means a lot. I I still do remember the values that I had with, you know, with Donnelly. And I was there for, for many, many years, was my first company in the US. It was like, you know, it was teamwork, it was honesty, it was respect, getting there together, um, integrity. And this is still resonating today. And, and I think that if you go into some of the company and you see already um, when you speak, we had the first initial talk with some of the people and, and, and you have nothing of that. Um, you can feel that at the level down, all the management team will be in the same line. So um, there is also a culture of diversity, which is 
extremely important for me, which, you know, in my management team, I always make sure that there is kind of an equal balance between uh, man and woman, but we are also in the lock industry. So I will say that, you know, being from different countries is also a true advantage. So um, that's what I had in my in my previous management team, diversity on many different fronts, because it's making us stronger in front of customers. So there is different sign about culture that you can uh, take on. Very difficult to change, uh, Sultan. And I, and I think that, you know, some of the key talents, I mean, think about, the, you know, think about the, for example, the, the Instagram of this world or, or, or Facebook at the time or whatever. People are joining there for a certain culture, right? And, and if they, there is not this culture, the talent will basically leave. And I think that what I mean, culture is so important. The, the company will carry on, you know, there's a big company and whatever, but then the talent will be leaving. How important to you is how the women in that organization are treated? Uh, that's an important aspect of culture to me. Yeah, it, it is very important. Um, I think I'm, I must admit that, you know, I, I, I work for, um, you know, Ardennely, um for many years, and this was a key topic, um, you know, and, and very important for us for many years. So it's not just now for the last two years or three years. This is something that we always kind of were particularly focused on. Um, and this is why, again, I'm very proud to say that potentially for the last um, 16 years, my management team was always 50-50. So we always kind of managed to bring this balance because it is very important. Let me ask you about a fundamental aspect of business transaction. When and how do you know that your acquisition was successful, Christophe? Is there a, a formula to calculate the ROI after a certain time? So, Sultan, I'm not, hopefully you saw that, uh, you know, as long as we go in this interview, I'm, I'm not I'm not a CFO, right, in terms of the ways that I right. reason and not a CFO. I'm talking in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but that's why I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting right. there with a, a small sense of humor here. I'm not a, C, <laughs> I'm not a CFO, C, it's a French humor. So that's why it's it's a bit slow. So my formula to calculate this, and like I say, I'm not a CEO who is a CFO or vice versa. Um, it's really for me, positive clients plus positive staff equal happy shareholders. That's really the basic for me. So I'm taking a look at the reverse in terms of thinking that this is a long-term value. That's how I qualified, a, a, you know, really an acquisition that was successful. It's very hard to say, you know, um, you know, after, you know, a few months, you look at the numbers and, you know, I mean, numbers can be pulled out in, in some different direction, right? You combine two regions, two products, whatever. What is key here is positive client feedback, positive staff retention on both sides. And then you have the happy shoulders. And then from a purely financial perspective, it can be very difficult to calculate the ROI unless the acquired business is standalone for a long period, right, Sultan? Because if not, clearly, if you leave it standalone, you can see, right, about how you manage to have an impact. But if you integrate, it's very hard then on, on, on getting the ROI. And that brings us back to the original concept of, of uh, strategic thinking, uh, what you mentioned earlier, basically. So if you have a purpose, a sense of, um, you know, existential reason for, for your company, then 
maybe you're seeing more value, not just in terms of monetary gains, but also in terms of the difference you're making in the world. Uh, whether that satisfies you as as uh, an owner or not, that's a different story. But but you can make a difference in the world by by acquiring another company that has the same vision as you. Yeah, correct. I mean, you know, then you have like different type of leader. Like I say, you know, you got the CFO type and and, and others that are very good to to keep and sustain businesses to create synergy and and let go people. I think that I'm kind of very proud with the teams that I had that we became from three to the number one translation company in the world and left there. So we were always entrepreneur. We were always looking to add value, not for being the biggest one, but to really thinking about creating value for our customers. So you're absolutely right in what you just mentioned here. And it's going back to the strategy at the beginning about why you do that to make sure that, you know, you get a boost on your stock or, or I mean, there is different angle and, and everyone has a different way to run kind of businesses and certain purposes. But I think that the, the business strategy is for me critical. Would you say now, Christophe, that it is a good time for acquisitions? Uh, I mean, the pandemic has created all kinds of uncertainties, but what does it mean for M&A activities in the language industry? Yeah, I think that um, there was already a very strong M&A trend uh, in the language services industry, but I think the COVID disrupted some some of it last year, and and uh, many of the smaller players really suffered finan- financially, right, from from some of the COVID effects. So there is still a strong appetite to buy and to sell, but all the market participation and waiting up, uh, you know, the risk and an evaluation. I think we need to kind of look at what really is happening in the next couple of couple of months. But clearly, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of fundings here in not only our industry but in many others. So we can see a peak of m and activity starting. Uh, we can see it in, in Asia already. I mean, you know, they were the first one suffering for the pandemic, but they are the first one also here reactivating uh, M&A, a lot of, of m and in terms of biotech companies in, in the APAC region. So clearly there is a trend and it will continue in our industry. Uh, besides consolidation within industry players, do you see m and activity that comes in from outside the industry. For uh, I've noticed recently, for example, some of the companies were purchased by uh, organizations that have nothing to do with translation or the language industry. Correct. I, I, I actually think that this is uh, an upcoming trend. I will, I will think that we are going to see more um, because so, so the translation is a key element of some greater content cycle. And I will say it's always, remember what we say, what you told me, and I told you this client, he told me, Christoph, 10 years ago, you and me thought we will solve it. Well, we did a good job, but we didn't resolve it. So I think that some of these guys say now, okay, well, why don't we get, why don't we get a company here and fit our entire life cycle of for our customers so it will be easier. You can see it in, in, in some of the industries that we are servicing in regulated industry that they are kind of acquiring some of this knowledge to build their own or to get some other company. So I will say that we saw a trend of company disinvesting from translation, but we are going to see a trend of company reinvesting in translation so they have the full range of services for their customers. So what can they do with that? What is the key advantages? It still remains the same for them. It's versus their competitor is to be faster and to gain time of to market for their customer. 
how much interest do you see from the likes of venture capital coming into our industry for acquisitions or to, to fund uh, these organizations because there is potential for, for growth for them? Yeah, I see. I mean, I see VC. I mean, you know, you see VC, which will be more in some of the tech and disruptive kind of approach. You see private equity, which will be for more mature when there is a bit of tech and and and, and services when they can consolidate. But there is also other players. It, I think we are into a cycle that we saw what all this flow of funding start, you know, both in our industry. I will say that some of the PE now will exit at one point or they will start to continue to make some deals that, you know, that will give them the return of investments that they were expecting for and potentially some other type of buyers coming on the side, which can be outside of, of our industry. As uh, we reach towards the end of this discussion, Christophe, I would like you to share some advice for both potential buyers and sellers in our industry uh, who are interested in, in acquiring or merging in the next, uh, let's say, 24 months. Yeah, sure. And I and, and I will say that, um, I mean, this is this is business and it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's really about be authentic in your approach, be natural. Um, it's already a stressful time uh, for everyone, right, during when you are in this process. So there is no point to add unnecessary pressure. Make sure you have the right people around you. Um, no personal agenda, but there is kind of a clear route towards the strategy and the execution about where you want to go with who. Everyone needs to be pulling into the same direction as well. It's going to be, you know, you will have to compromise. That's, that's, that's for sure. You will have to compromise and you need to be in this kind of mindset um, if you want to make sure that you know you complete the transaction um, base your decision on facts don't not on perception i will say that you know sometimes you may have hmm, this is what i thought this is no really make sure you take some back step um, and you are making your decision on facts got one boss one day who always told me to go under the skin of things in order for you to make the right decision, I will say that when you are in the M&A deal, this is really when it's very important uh, to do it. Make sure that you are covering some of the angle. Lastly, and the most important is communication. You need to over communicate during this time when you can internally and externally. This is critical with your customer as well. Um, I will say that this is really the basic. And, and if when you get ready for a sale and, and the integration, the 100 days are critical. If you don't get this 100 days right, it's not going to be fun because you will have the wrong foundation. You will miss some of the key alignments. It will be some anxiety towards, you know, some of the platform. I mean, I, I think, and then some of the client will see the difference. And this is really what, you know, some of when you are leaders, you want to avoid. Christoph, sadly, we've reached the end of this conversation, um, but if people listening to you now would like to talk to you about these subjects or anything else, how should they reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you can, as, as, as you heard, hopefully, um, you know, I'm very passionate about, about the M&A and it's an exciting time. And um, I will say that, you know, do not hesitate to contact me via LinkedIn. Um, I'm currently in transition now, so I think we'll be glad to kind of direct you in anything you need, but um, you know, very pleased to, or will be very pleased to help anyone here who need to have further advice.
Christoph, I really enjoyed our conversation talking to you today. You have a lot to share with the industry, and I think the, the industry appreciates to learn about your experiences and perspectives. I'm sure people have learned at least one thing from today's discussion that they can take back and apply to their business. Uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. I want to acknowledge all your contributions to our industry, and with that, I want to thank you for your time today. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you very much for the invitation again, Sultan. Talk soon. Okay, it's time for my roundup of the interview and my analysis as to what has been discussed. Acquisitions are always tricky and for an organization that is looking to buy, many things have to be in place to meet the requirements. As Christoph pointed out, successful acquisitions happen when expectations are clear from the start and unfortunately not many buyers establish clear expectations. Proper research combined with thorough due diligence and a mutually agreed upon process will result in successful acquisitions. Remember that brokers exist for a reason and they provide a very good value for the investment because they know the industry and all the issues that buyers and sellers come across in transactions of language companies. If you're in the market to buy, it is a good time if you can find the right investment. I wish you luck. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode. I think the subject we cover today is very important and we only pay attention to it once we are confronted with a situation that involves acquisition of a language company. Christoph has shared some amazing thoughts and insights that should be considered by anyone looking at buying or selling for that matter. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. Make sure to give us a thumbs up and a five star to boost the ratings of this podcast. Keep your constructive criticism and feedback coming. It helps a lot. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.